Real Politics and Empire is joined by David Stockman, who served as budget director on, under Ronald Reagan and was one of the key architects of the Reagan Revolution plan to reduce taxes, cut spending, and shrink the role of government. He joined Solomon Brothers in 1985, later become one of the early partners of the Blackstone Group. He's the author of many books, uh, the latest being Trump's War on Capitalism. I've got uh, the copy right here. I just finished reading it. Uh, very much enjoyed it. Highly recommend it. People can also go to David Stockman's Corner.com to subscribe to the newsletter. Welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, David. Great to be with you. A uh, lot of interesting topics we have to cover here today. So we can dig right in, I think. Yeah, uh, you know, we discussed your last book on my TNT radio uh, program, The Great Money Bubble, which I very much uh, enjoyed. And previously, you've written Trumped, A Nation yeah. on the Brink of Ruin and How to Bring It Back, as well as Peak Trump, The Undrainable Swamp and the Fantasy of MAGA. And now you've got this new book out with a foreword by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Trump's war on capitalism. And so why um, the, the focus on Trump's record uh, uh, on the economy now? Well, uh, let me just first say that you covered all of my recent books. You missed one, though. Uh, in 2020, I wrote a book called Dump Trump, <laughs> you know, on the grounds that he hadn't earned another term. And uh, obviously that fell, uh, that uh, materialized. But I, I wrote this book because uh, there is a huge myth that obscures how bad his policies were from the point of view of conservative economics, which is to say, you know, fiscal rectitude and keeping the public debt under some reasonable level of control, sound money as opposed to this marathon of money printing that we've had from the Fed for many years now, uh, free markets, uh, both at home and abroad, um, and, you know, civil liberties and constitutional rights uh, which were totally massacred by the lockdowns in the COVID policy in the spring of 2020. So on all of those fronts, Trump's policies were really bad. He's the biggest spender ever to occupy the Oval Office. The debt rose, as I lay out in the book, from 20 trillion to 28 trillion rounded uh, during his four years. You think that sounds like a big number, but it's even a bigger number when you compare it to how did we get the first eight trillion uh, as of 20, uh, 2005? Well, the answer is it took 216 years of the American Republic and 43 presidents to generate eight trillion of public debt. And Donald Trump did it in four years, another eight trillion. So um, his policies uh, will make everything that we're struggling with in America today worse. But the reason I wrote the book is there is a tendency on the part of a lot of well-meaning Republicans and conservatives and what you might call MAGA uh, uh, folks, voters, to say, well, yes, uh, he's a little bombastic when it comes to the deportment uh, category. And uh, he uh, hasn't really addressed the big issues, uh, fiscal and monetary policy, but he had a great economy. And we need to restore the great Trump economy. And the answer is it wasn't great. <laughs> the facts just belie all of the bombast and all of the boasting that has been done by Donald Trump, which is basically his nature, 
but as as well uh, by his uh, you know supporters and followers. So you can measure it many ways. I've got three or four. I'll hit those quickly, and then we can um, maybe unpack it a little more. Ultimately, the bottom line is what is the economic growth rate over the term of the president? Uh, the growth rate over uh, Donald Trump's four years was 1.5%. That's pretty uh, puny, really. The average uh, for all presidents going back to Truman through uh, Harry Truman uh, in the late 40s, early 50s through 2016 was 3.04%. So in other words, the growth rate during Donald Trump's uh, tenure was half of the historic norm. Now, I think the historic norm uh, is not uh, perfect by any means. Uh, during that period, we had, uh, I think, somewhat, uh, somewhere like nine recessions. Uh, we had any number of international crises. We had wars and, uh, you know, rumors of war, so, so to speak. So it is a pretty solid benchmark to say you can't say that, you, that you've had the greatest economy ever when you produced a growth rate that was less than half of the historic norm among good presidents, bad presidents, uh, and indifferent presidents. That's the first point. Uh, the second point is Republicans always have believed that the way you spur economic growth is by shrinking government and by encouraging investment uh, in the private economy. But if we look at investment in the private economy, uh, for all for the 50 years from 1950, let's say, to the year 2000, the average real investment growth rate, this is for business, non-financial uh, non business, was about 5% per annum. Uh, during Donald Trump's four years, it was one-third of 1% per annum. So there was not notwithstanding the big tax cut that there was a lot of uh, uh, breast beating about, uh, the bottom line measure is did it do any good? Well, apparently it didn't because the real growth uh, rate of investment uh, during his term was 0.3. Then ultimately, uh, when you think about economic performance and uh, let's call it prosperity generally, a very good measure at the end of the day is real per capita GDP. And what does it do over any you know, reasonable period of time? Well, the answer is real per capita GDP, again, over the 40, 50 years before Trump, you know, averaged about 2.5% per year, some years higher, some years lower, some presidents better, some presidents worse, but it was 2.5% Come, you know, uh, in good times and bad. Under Trump, real per capita GDP rose by just 1% per annum, or, you know, ba barely two-fifths of what had been the historic norm. And then finally, you know, uh, Trump did a huge amount of boasting about all the jobs he created. And of course, you know, there's a real trick to that because in a capitalist economy, uh, you know, you get growth year in and year out, uh, some better, some worse, but you always have more jobs this year than you had last year. 
Trump managed to um, achieve something that no one has achieved since Herbert Hoover. And that is when he left uh, office in January 2021, there were 142.5 million non-farm payroll jobs in the U.S. And that compares to 145.4 million or 3 million more that uh, were recorded in January 2017 when he moved into the Oval Office. So if you look at investment, you look at jobs, industrial production, which I also uh, need to mention, actually declined during Trump's four years, uh, real growth. If you look at all of those indicators, the, the record is the worst one in the post-war period. It wasn't certainly the greatest economy ever. And you can't excuse all the bad policy and all the bad behavior because he had a good economy because the good economy is a PR fiction. It's something that uh, has been asserted by uh, Trump and his supporters, and the facts simply don't bear it out. And, you know, I, I would <laughs> agree with your case. You know, I'm not anti-Trump. I'm not terribly pro-Trump. I'm just um, sort of in the middle. But uh, I, I think, you you uh, you know, your picture is... Um, accurate and uh, something you know reading your book something that came to mind as well i feel in the u.s we have sort of an ol oligarchy uh, oligarchic system you know an aristocracy a plutocracy and um how much you know we've got the the the, the fed federal reserves the central banking system and a lot of policies are you know we, we've got a unit party uh, a lot of policies are, are bipartisan how much um would this what you just described would be would it be Trump's fault versus how much um, would it just be you know the, the nature of the system that we have? Well, you know that's a great question, and I think ultimately it's the nature of the system. You got two big uh, problems. I might even go so far to say evils at the center of our system. One is the central bank, the Federal Reserve, which is totally out of control. It's become a rogue agency that's doing any number of very bad things which we can get into. And second is the military industrial complex and what I call the warfare state. And if you want to throw a third one in, you've got a welfare state that has ballooned enormously uh, over recent decades. And it all adds up to a government that's way too big, uh, a public debt that's enormous, uh, chronic annual deficits uh, that are almost unimaginable or would have been almost unimaginable a few years ago. And now we have them as a matter of course, a trillion, two trillion, even three trillion a couple of years ago. So those are the problems. And the issue with Donald Trump is that he, you know, positions himself, poses as an outsider, uh, a fresh look, uh, going to come down to Washington and uh, drain the swamp. But the problem is when he got there, he filled the swamp. He didn't drain it. Uh, and even on the issue of the national security state, the warfare state, um, you know, he said all the right words. He called for an America first foreign policy. He called out NATO by saying, why don't you people start shelling out for your own security defense? All that's appropriate. 
But when he got to town, he inherited a $600 billion defense budget that was already way, way too big, bloated beyond any reasonable level in terms of the actual threats uh, to uh, homeland security in America. And by the time he left, it was up to $850 billion and rising rapidly. So uh, in, in other words, he uh, compounded the warfare state problem by something like 40%. And uh, all of that, of course, flowed into the annual deficit in, in borrowing, and it made it, uh, you know, even harder for any Republicans that might have been willing to cut domestic spending on Capitol Hill to uh, advocate for that, since, uh, you know, it, it appeared that all of the domestic cuts that maybe some of these uh, backbench Republicans uh, wanted to make would be just reallocated to defense spending. It wouldn't uh, reduce the overall size of government. It wouldn't reduce the annual deficit. It wouldn't stop uh, the growth uh, of this uh, uh, ballooning public debt. So uh, the, and then, of course, when we get to the other uh, twin evil, the Federal Reserve, you know, Trump is is probably got the worst position on central banking and sound money of any president, you know, going all the way back to Harry Truman or even, I don't know if Roosevelt was that bad. Uh, he kept, you know, harassing, haranguing the Fed throughout his term to keep interest rates at zero. And when they tried to raise them even tepidly to something that was even halfway normal, uh, he was all over their case. When they uh, went into uh, fi finally what they called QT, quantitative tightening, which was to shrink this, you know, huge balance sheet that even Bernanke said after the crisis of 2008, 2009, 2010, uh, that they would normalize, that is, roll back to something more reasonable. It had gone from, you know, 900 billion on the eve of the great financial crisis to a peak of. 4.5 trillion just in a few years. So even Bernanke said, we're going to roll this back uh, to something, uh, you know, much lower. Uh, Trump got in, they tried to do that, and he was all over their case uh, that uh, they were uh, doing, you know, going in the wrong direction. So uh, again, if we look at uh, that set of uh, policies, uh, he was positioned uh, in exactly the wrong direction. And and something you attack um, in the book, which I think is important and rightfully so, uh, was how Trump was not some savior when it came to saving us from the tyranny of the biosecurity states. You know, he be, he spearheaded Operation Warp Speed, uh, allowed the the mandates, the lockdowns, um, a lot of the money printing during that time, and the ex um, excessive spending. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's, it's a bitter pill to swallow, but we have to, I think, take away our emotions and look at the cold hard facts as you do. And so your thoughts um, uh, of, of Trump uh, under COVID. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's the heart of the matter. And on that, I repair to something I call the Truman Doctrine. And I'm not talking about, you know, containment of the Soviet Union in 1947. The Truman Doctrine was embodied in a plaque on his desk that famously said the, the buck stops here. And what he meant by that was, I'm not going to make any excuses. 
Ultimately, I'm responsible for what's going on in the government. And uh, if, uh, you know, uh, these if what happens is uh, unproductive or counterproductive or negative, I'm going to take responsibility. Well, Trump ultimately uh, caused this entire catastrophe uh, of the COVID uh, lockdowns and then Operation Warp, Warp Speed and the whole hysteria in the country uh, about the COVID, which was a serious virus, like many that we've had over the years, 1967, 1956, uh, you know, all the way going back to 1917 uh, and before. But he turned it into an excuse for a massive intervention by government in our daily economic and social lives that caused, uh, you know, untold harm uh, to the economy. Now, how, why did this happen? And the answer is, it's one of the uh, reasons why I think there's no way uh, Trump should get another term. He has no economic principles. He slides by the seat of his ample britches, as I say in the book. And, uh, you know, you never know what he's going to come up with the next day. It all depends on whatever whim crosses his mind or who he listens to last or what he thinks might help elevate uh, him uh, to the glorious status that, uh, you know, he believes uh, he's entitled to. So if you look at the COVID, uh, as late as March 11th, uh, 2020, you know, there's several tweets. They're all in my book quoted. I won't go through all the quote, but it, it, the gist of it was, yeah, we have, um, you know, we have the flu season every year. Some years is better, some years worse. Often 30, 40, 50,000 people are said to die as a result of the flu. And we don't shut down the economy. We don't say the world's ending. We uh, use the medical system to treat people and make do. Now, he said that on March 11th. By March 16th, he had done a 180-degree about-face, uh, declared a national emergency, went on TV uh, saying that we've got to shut down the whole economy for two weeks in order to flatten the curve and unleashed Dr. Fauci uh, and Dr. Burks and the whole group of malpracticing doctors, as I call them, uh, to, um, you know, uh, launch this whole uh, lockdown uh, episode. So how could someone change their mind on something that fundamental, like property rights? He destroyed billions of dollars worth of property on the part of people who, you know, had built a business over years and decades and suddenly found it closed, suddenly found themselves bankrupt and their livelihood taken away. Literally millions of small businesses were wiped out. Now, the extent of the trauma to the economy it needs to be understood because remember now, we're talking about a period uh, five days from March 11 to March 16, uh, swinging on a dime. And by the uh, second quarter of 2020, as the, lo- as the shoe came down and the White House uh, uh, Coronavirus Task Force began to have this daily reality show where they came on and 
gave all the latest horrendous uh, statistics and scared the living daylights out of the entire public. So even people that weren't officially <laughs> locked out uh, of their jobs or uh, the malls or uh, restaurants uh, stayed home anyway because, you know, hunkered down because the White House task force, the bully pulpit, uh, was scaring the hell out of them. But in any event, by the second quarter, real GDP contracted by the astounding level of 34% at an annual rate. In any event, uh, the economic trauma was uh, off the radar screen, off the charts of history. Uh, and um, uh, when you have a contraction of GDP by 34%, four times more severe than the worst recession since World War II, the Great Recession, that's one measure. But another one that I point out in the book is that if you look at ground zero of the lockdown policy, that was uh, obviously in what we call, you know, the social interaction domain, uh, restaurants, bars, gyms, uh, shopping malls, uh, sports arenas, uh, movie theaters, and so forth. If you look at that sector, which the BLS uh, calls leisure and hospitality, the fact is that in April 2020, as these lockdowns spread like uh, wildfire through the economy and then were, you know, exacerbated and reinforced by state uh, governors and public health departments, uh, the employment index for leisure and hospitality, and this really is a very good index, it measures hours worked, not just headcounts, but that actual hours work, declined by 58% during a, uh, April of 2020 compared to the prior month. Now, I mean, this is like wiping out half of the employment in an industry. And to get some uh, feeling, uh, measure for the magnitude of this, it's the case that in April 2020, the level of employment on the index of hours in leisure and hospitality was rolled all the way back to the level first achieved in April 1979. In other words, four decades worth of steady year after year employment growth. And really, that was the most rapidly growing sector of the uh, economy in terms of job growth. 40 years of job growth in the most robust uh, sector of the economy in terms of jobs was wiped out in 30 days. It's startling. Now, uh, that, that would have set the economy spiraling into a uh, pretty bad tailspin, except the government then came along and said, well, I guess it's our fault. We, we're causing 20 million people to be laid off almost instantaneously, half of an industry to be wiped out, the GDP to shrink at unprecedented rates. So we better just dump the most massive amount of money imaginable on the economy and somehow hope that it can keep uh, you know, uh, uh, struggling along. And so they passed in 11 days uh, from Trump's speech on the 26th or on the 16th of uh, March till uh, March uh, 27th, a $2.2 trillion COVID relief 
catch-all, pork-ridden bailout that was unimaginable, 800 pages. Nobody read it. There was money for everything. 90% of households got a $1,000 check for doing nothing except being in the U.S. Census. And uh, unemployed workers, uh, who it was either their fault or it wasn't, but the point is they normally would have get, gotten $350, $400 a week unemployment benefits under the state system, were suddenly given $600 a week on top of that from the Federal CARES Act uh, just for good measure. So we ended up just flooding the economy with all of this cash. All of it was borrowed. It would have driven interest rates sky high and caused even further upset in the economy. But the Fed came along <laughs> to the rescue, turned on the printing press like never before, and bought hand over fist uh, government debt to the tune of $120 billion a month. Month after month after month, their balance sheet went from $3.8 trillion on the eve of the COVID lockdowns to a peak of nine trillion a couple years later, when they finally, you know, had to call this whole uh, uh, frenzy of money printing to a halt. So these are some of the uh, distortions that occurred, and they're not just, you know, small debatable policy errors. These are massive, off the charts, um, you know, disturbances, dislocations in our basic uh, fiscal system and in economic uh, life that uh, are going to be stuck with us for a long time to come. In other words, it wasn't a temporary aberration that's all over and done and gone away. Uh, there was so much debt piled on to both public and private sector. There was so much liquidity pumped into the economy by the Fed. There were so many distortions in labor markets, uh, in supply chains and so forth, caused by uh, uh, this whole uh, set of policies that we're still uh, struggling uh, with the consequences. That's why we ended up with 40-year high inflation. That's why, you know, a year, year and a half ago, inflation was bordering on 10%. It's down a little bit now, but not nearly as much as they're claiming. But all of these... Um, adverse effects really were not necessary. They were the fruits of a very bad decision made by one guy at the end of the day, Donald J. Trump, on, uh, you know, effectively March 16th, when he said, okay, Dr. Fauci, I guess you know what you're talking about. We're going to shut down the economy. Anybody who had serious economic principles, you know, understood that the free market is how we get prosperity, understood that the Constitution does provide for property rights, for due process. Anybody who understood that never would have embraced, you know, two weeks to, to flatten the curve or would have kept extending it, you know, uh, month after month after month, as Trump did during that period. So again, it gets back to the fact that he's basically a Caesarist. And what I mean by that is uh, his political philosophy is that he's a great man. And if you give the great man a lot of power, he can make everything uh, happen because he's such a genius and such a uh, tremendous uh, negotiator and, you know, every other fantasy he has about his own uh, capabilities and experience. Well, 
That's a dangerous thing. I don't want a Caesarist in the. I would rather have a uh, semi uh, veg, vegetable in the Oval Office like we have today than a Caesarist uh, who's trying to, uh, you know, throw around uh, the power of government in ways that um, we saw during his first term. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, and uh, there's a lot more in your book that. We don't have time to cover you discuss uh, Trump's position on migration, which, uh, you know, you say that we actually need a larger immigrant uh, workforce. You also discuss China. Um, but something for me that's important is, you know, you've got a chapter titled The Rising Tide, which lifted all the yachts uh, yeah. and this and this sort of increasing wealth gap that we're seeing um, this uh, wiping out of the middle class, uh, which I call neo-feudalism. We've all heard of you know, the World Economic Forum's project of the Great Reset. That's what Klaus Schwab, Schwab calls it. And I think we're, we're seeing all over the place, the middle class is being wiped out and it's neo-feudalism. It's like, you know, back in the Middle Ages where you only got the aristocracy and then us serfs and plebes. Uh, just any thought uh, on that? Yeah, exactly. But it goes back to the evil of the Federal Reserve. You know, they kept saying, look, you know, we printed a lot of money in 208, 209. We kept doing it on through the teens. But there wasn't a lot of inflation, at least by their phony measures. It was only 2% plus or minus. So we didn't create a big inflation disaster. The But the answer is they created an enormous inflation. But it was an inflation of financial assets in Wall Street. All of their tremendous money uh, printing and uh, issuance of new uh, fiat credit never left the canyons of Wall Street. And it was spent, you know, buying stocks, uh, uh, funding financial engineering schemes to shrink shares outstanding and thereby goose stock uh, prices even more. So what we got was a tremendous inflation of financial assets. Now, the problem is when you look at uh, the stock market, which is about 40 trillion big or so, um, you know, the top 1% owns 40, 50% uh, roughly of all stock and the top 10% of households owns 93%. So if you have a policy that inflates persistently, aggressively, and massively uh, financial asset prices, the benefit ends up in the bank account of the one accounts of the one percent and the five and the ten percent. Now, if we take Trump's term alone, the top one percent of households, on average, gain ten million dollars worth of the net worth each. The bottom 50% or 90% of households uh, gained about, you know, something I think in the order of $1,800. Okay. So uh, that is uh, just one. There are many ways to measure it, but that is just one um, piece of evidence as to why what I call the bubble finance of the Fed is such a bad thing. And that the job of any decent conservative Republican president would have been to rein in the Fed, house clean the Fed, get some of those money printers out of there, get a sound money man in the chairman's job. But Trump did none of that. He put Jay Powell in there. Well, you know, Powell was a lawyer and a Washington hanger on uh, who made a lot of money in private equity and uh, had no reason to believe that the bubble uh you know was anything uh, to worry about so he uh 
you know, uh, compounded it uh, during his uh, period until then they panicked in March 2022 when they saw inflation at 40-year high levels. So, uh, the, you know, the, again, uh, that uh, is another uh, aspect of the rising tide. Yeah, we had a rising tide. We've had it since the late uh, 18, uh, 1980s uh, with Greenspan, but it really got bad during Trump's four years. But the rising tide was lifting the yachts. It wasn't lifting the broad middle class. And I use that phrase uh, deliberately because it was originally famously used in a speech on his economic program and tax cut that President John Kennedy proposed in the early 1960s. And he did say a rising tide lifts all boats. And he was arguing that because at the time, Democrats wanted to tax the uh, daylights out of anybody that had any kind of wealth. He was actually arguing uh, that if we reduce the tax burden and increase incentives, um, the resulting gains in economic uh, investment and growth in prosperity will uh, benefit the broad population. So it's kind of ironic that uh, President Kennedy laid out that marker, and here we are with Trump trying to reelect himself when he did the opposite. And of course, uh, I'm supporting uh, Bobby Kennedy, uh, President Kennedy's uh, nephew, because he's the only guy on the political scene today who understands the evil of the warfare state and the need to bring the empire home and the evil of the Federal Reserve and the need to, uh, you know, curtail dramatically its uh, constant injection of cheap money and cheap credit and liquidity uh, into Wall Street. So you might be voting libertarian this time around because I well, heard, or, 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 <laughs> whatever whatever ticket he's on, I'm voting it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I guess my last question would be then your thoughts on the road ahead um, in 2024. It's looking to be an insane year, uh, whether it's the wars that America is becoming engulfed in, Blinken recently said that he, it hasn't been this bad in the Middle East since at least 1973. Um, and, you know, when it comes to the economy, I had on uh, the program last year, Colonel Douglas McGregor, who says Washington is staring at um, a financial uh, Armageddon. So, you know, your your thoughts on, on um, you know, where we're uh, headed and, and any other final thought for us? Well, you know, uh, when you have uh, two uh, octogenarians uh, vying for the presidency, you can't be very optimistic about the future, given the um, uh, convergence of all of these problems, foreign policy, uh, the public debt, uh, the uh, domestic economy, which is kind of limping along, just waiting for the next recession to happen. On the other hand, I would say there's one glimmer of hope, and that is what I'm looking forward to is the possibility that enough people in both parties will say, we've had it with the uniparty. Uh, they basically talk a good game, go down to Washington and do the same old thing over and over. The debt gets bigger and the forever wars uh, continue and uh, we launch new ones uh, like in the Red Sea at the present time against the Houthis. What the hell are we doing trying to police the Red Sea? It's no great matter uh, to our homeland security. 
But in any event, uh, people are getting fed up with this, and just maybe enough people from both parties will vote uh, for Robert Kennedy, RFK Jr., so that in the Electoral College, he'll pick up enough uh, votes, a few small states, a couple of the states where they vote by congressional district, not by the winner-take-all at the state level, to cause a hung jury in the Electoral College. Remember, you have to have 270 votes to be elected by the Electoral College. But if our, and given the red state, blue state divide is so uh, severe, it's very likely that neither Trump or Biden would get 270 if uh, Robert Kennedy can take away 10, 15, 20 uh, electoral votes in strategic places. What would that mean? It would mean the the election would go to the House of Representatives for the first time in 200 years since the election of 1824, uh, nice symmetry, 200 years, uh, uh, 1824, when John Quincy Adams was elected. Well, John Quincy Adams, I think, was a great president. And one of the, uh, you know, uh, slogans or phrases that's forever associated with him was a speech that he famously gave in which he said, we go not abroad looking for monsters to destroy. And it was a whole uh, a philosophy that he laid out uh, that we're on uh, the fair side of the great ocean moats, Atlantic and Pacific, we'll mind our own business, we'll protect our own uh, homeland security, but we won't uh, involve ourselves in all the intrigues and wars and maneuvers of the old world in Europe or elsewhere. He was right about that. And essentially, um, in nineteen or in twenty twenty four, we could get a repeat of of an election that might give us a chance to bring the empire home. Either because in the House of Representatives they can't agree on either Trump or Biden, and they elect Kennedy, or uh, Kennedy makes a deal with one of the two uh, for a sweeping change in our debt in a sweeping change in our warfare state, shrinkage and bringing the empire home as a condition for his support. So there's the glimmer of hope. Let it go into the House of Representatives. Let a big uh, bargain be made uh, in what would be uh, an environment of crisis to uh, sort of break loose the baleful uh, grip of the uniparty on our uh, public policy, because the uniparty is a party of drift. You know, uh, the forever wars go on, the defense budget gets bigger and bigger, the debt is 34 trillion, it'll be 50 trillion uh, by the end of this decade, uh, and up from there. Uh, none of these things are being addressed. So we need a realigning election, we need a crystallizing event, and about the only one that I can see realistically on the horizon is a hung jury in the Electoral College uh, with uh, Robert Kennedy ending up as the kingmaker in the House of Representatives, where, uh, last point I'll make on this, they vote by state delegation, not by number of you know uh, House members or congressmen. So Wyoming will have the same cloud as California, which I think will make for a rather interesting ball game 
And uh, another reason why I think there's a glimmer of hope that if we could get the election to the U.S. House, maybe there's a chance uh, to turn the uh, direction of the ship of state. And I would agree with you. You know, I came to this similar conclusion a couple of years back watching RFK Jr. And he does seem to be, when you compare to everyone currently, as well as in the recent past, the, the most outspoken on the deep states, on the military industrial complex, on the biosecurity state, um, um, to, to quite you know, a surprising extent. So I guess we'll see what happens. Um, Again, highly recommend the book, Trump's War on Capitalism. I've got the Kindle uh, here. Uh, hopefully, I can leave you a review because my guest, previous guest, J. Michael Waller, who worked in the deep state, his book, Big Intel, Amazon did not, they sent me an email saying I could not uh, leave a review that um, I didn't say anything, you know, strange, but uh, it's this is the administrative technocratic straight, uh, state at work, uh, and I believe you're best website all the links are in the description uh is david stockman's contra corner.com uh and thank you for being on geopolitics and empire very good great to talk with you i hope you enjoyed this geopolitics and empire podcast the website is geopoliticsandempire.com and i encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines the newsletter and website are our last lines of defense we're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find geopolitics and empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.